and a very warm welcome to all of you here this morning. Particularly want to welcome those of you who are visitors here today. Uh, perhaps you're here for the first time, you've come with a friend, and um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to have you. I remember the first time I came to a church of this nature, um, I was in the Baxter Theatre actually, it's about 15 years ago, and I remember seeing a group of people about your age, I was about your age at that time, and doing exactly what was happening this morning, people with their hands raised, people singing and praising God, and to me it was, it was all a little strange. I don't know how you feel if you're a visitor here this morning. Um, it's funny, I didn't, it didn't make me feel uncomfortable, although it might make you feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. But I was just intrigued by it. it was, to me, it was fascinating that uh, young people would do that. <laughs> I am responsible from that one in pink, so it's my own fault. <clears throat> anyway, so if you're a visitor, I hope that you can at least feel comfortable enough amongst us to relax and try to engage with what I'm going to say to you this morning. And I do pray that the Lord will open your heart to take heed to the things which He tells us in His Word. Um, We're going to be looking at another story today in which Jesus encountered someone. Uh, That's what we're looking at in this series of sermons. Uh, Today we're looking at a, a paralytic man who... Uh, was brought by his friends to Jesus. An amazing story. So let's uh, read the first three verses of that story. If you'll go to the book of Luke with me, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, don't let it worry you. Uh, I will read the verses out so you can just listen to me. But if you've got a Bible, go to the book of Luke. And we're going to look at chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. You'll see that I have dressed down considerably for you this morning. I'm sneaking up on you. By the seventh week, I'm going to be wearing shorts and a vest. And you won't even notice. So, uh, Luke chapter 5. And we start in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and of Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I, I aim to make three points to you this morning. Very simple points, and I'm going to tell you what they are beforehand so that you can track with the train of thought. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is that the greatest moments in all of human history have been moments of Christian revival. Many great things have happened through history. The history books are peppered with stories of heroism and And hardship and great breakthroughs and things of that nature. But I'm here to tell you the greatest moments in all of human history have been those of Christian revival. Those moments marked by great swelling crowds who have flocked to come and hear the preaching of the gospel. Second point I want to make is that when those moments in life come, 
when we find ourselves in a, a situation where we are listening to the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of God's word, and we find our hearts moved. Those moments in life where we come, as it were, face to face with the living God, with the moving of His Holy Spirit, and we feel a deep conviction that we need to make some action. We, he's calling us to, to take some decision of commitment to Him. When those moments come, my friend, you need to take them. Because they don't present themselves often in life. It's my second point today. And thirdly, that your greatest need in life, and mine, is not what you think it is. Now we're going to see those three points as we work through this story together this morning. First point, that the greatest moments in all of human history are those of Christian revival. Jesus had been uh, ministering in this town called Capernaum uh, from the early days of his ministry. In fact, uh, Capernaum was kind of like a base for, for Jesus. It was called his home in the book of Mark. Incidentally, this story of the paralytic man is, accounted, is recounted by all three of what we call the synoptic gospels. That's uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke. All three of those gospel writers tell this story, and we can kind of piece together the full story by reading all three of those accounts. And um, uh, in Mark's gospel, it says that uh, he was at home. It uses the word home. So Jesus had, either it was his own small rented house in Capernaum, or he was staying in one place where he regularly stayed. Maybe Peter's house. Peter lived in Capernaum. How, whatever it was, he was at home again. And he had built up quite a reputation in Capernaum. We saw in uh, previous accounts in the book of Mark that Jesus had been in Capernaum one time uh, before this. And he'd been preaching and a demon had manifested in the meeting. And at, simply by speaking a word, the demon had come out of the man and he'd been healed. And the crowds had been absolutely astonished. Uh, the reputation of Jesus had grown to such a, an extent that he could no longer walk openly in uh, Judea or in Galilee. Everywhere he went, there were just phenomenal crowds that gathered around him. At one point, the Bible says he didn't even have time to eat, he and his disciples. They were so pressed with people everywhere they went. And the thing was that the common people who heard him gladly, the Bible says, they began to realize when this man Jesus speaks, when he preaches, his preaching is with authority and power. He didn't speak like the Pharisees, like the teachers of the law, who they were accustomed to going to the synagogue on a Saturday, like we go to church on a Sunday. Dead preaching. But when Jesus preached, there was life and there was power and there was an unearthly authority. Uh, you know, we will never have the opportunity to sit under preaching like the preaching of Jesus. It must have been quite staggering. It absolutely captivated people. So Jesus had this reputation in Capernaum and here he was again at home in Capernaum. He's in the house and the Bible says that word got out as it always did. And people are starting, they're running down the street knocking on doors. Jesus is here, he's here. Where is he? Well, we know he's, he's at home. He's, he's here. Come. And before uh, you could, you know, two shakes of a lamb's tail, as they say, there were people gathered around the house. And people and the, and the, the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, it says, had traveled 
to, to Capernaum, some of them from as far as Jerusalem, down south in Judea. They had come because they heard Jesus was there, and there they are sitting. Uh, you know, they've got the front row seats because they are the men who have power, and they've got, you know, the respect of everyone. And so there they are sitting, but the common people are piling into this house. And, you know, pretty soon the, the room in which Jesus is, is, is packed full of people. You couldn't fit another person in there. There's people sitting on the floors, down the aisles, you know, all over the place. People squeezing in the back doors and then that's full. So then if, if, if the house did have other rooms, the other rooms begin to fill up. People are piling into the bathroom. People sitting on the toilet. Someone sitting on the lap of the guy on the toilet. Just people everywhere in this house. You can't get into the house anymore. Then there's people who are climbing into the windows and sitting in the windowsills. And then people standing outside the windows, looking in, trying to catch, see if they could just hear what Jesus is saying. And then a bank of people start piling up at the front door and then around the house. The Bible says there were so many people that day, you couldn't even get near the house. That's the scene. And uh, Jesus feels compassion for these people. And what does he do? He begins to preach. Did you notice that? The Bible says Jesus had great compassion on the masses, on people. And he had great compassion on individuals. Wherever he went, he felt compassion for people. There was one moment where uh, the crowds were coming to him. He was out in a deserted place and the crowds are just coming to him from everywhere. And he sees this like ants coming down the hills. The Bible says he was moved with compassion for them. Because they were, now listen carefully, like sheep without a shepherd. My friend, if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. In other words, you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ and asked for the forgiveness of your sins. The testimony of Jesus himself about where you are in your life, and I'm not trying to offend you this morning, but I want to confront you with the spiritual truth of the teachings of the Bible. According to Jesus himself, you are like a sheep without a shepherd. You are lost. You have no light in life. You have no truth in life. You have no one to show you the way. You have no one to protect you. You have no one to ensure that you don't get deceived by what you're believing. By what you're giving your life to. By the decisions that you're taking in your life. You're lost without Jesus Christ. And the answer to our being lost without Jesus is not for him to heal the sick. That's not the answer, although we praise God that he did heal the sick, because he was compassionate. The answer is not worship and singing wonderful songs, but we thank God that we can gather together and we can raise our hands and we can just express the gratitude that we have to God. Let me tell you, how did Jesus respond to compassion to people? He responded by preaching. Preaching is the central mission of the church. The teaching of the Bible. Because in the teachings of the Bible and in the preaching of the gospel, we learn how to be saved. It was one of the things that was recaptured in the Reformation from the Catholic Church. They used to have the the Mass in Latin. Many of the priests themselves didn't even speak Latin. So you've got priests reciting things that they don't understand 
speaking to people who have no idea what they're saying and that's supposedly going to do some good to your soul. No. Jesus wants to engage with you. He wants to engage with your mind. He wants to speak truth to you and reason with you. And so Jesus preaches to these people. And the Bible says, it is this curious phrase, it says, The power of the Lord was with him to heal them. Just picture the scene. There's Jesus, he, he's either standing or, or seated in this, in this house that is absolutely jam-packed with people. And before him, front row seats are the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And there they are scowling at him, wanting to check him out, find something they can criticize in him. And all the common people standing around, and the Bible says that the the scribes and the Pharisees never did anything in front of the people. They didn't want to attack Jesus before the people because they thought the people would stone them. Because everyone loved Jesus and believed in him and was following him. But the, the Pharisees checking him out. And yet the Bible says he was, as he was standing there in this incredibly electrifying environment, he was clothed with power. Incredible. The greatest moments in human history are environments like that. Where there is a standoff between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of Jesus Christ breaking in to a sinful world. And the gospel is about to be preached. I tell you, my greatest desire, other than the responsibilities and and desires I have for my family, my marriage, my children. Other than that, my greatest desire in life is for there to be a revival of Christian religion. A great revival. A revival that will bring people who formerly had absolutely no interest in the gospel. People who you think would never be religious. Who have no interest in Jesus Christ. No interest in the Bible. But there is some power that descends from heaven at moments in history. It's like God tears open the heavens and he falls on us. And people who had no interest before start flooding into rooms, desperate to hear the preaching of the gospel. God's done it before, and I can tell you this morning, He can do it again. In 1735, there was a young man, 21-year-old young minister, uh, by the name of George Whitfield, who absolutely captivated a generation with his preaching. He began to preach... So powerfully as a 21 year old young man that uh, pretty soon he was preaching nine times a week in London to churches that were absolutely packed to capacity. Now in the 18th century in England that's quite something because it was the most immoral, sordid environment that you can think of. People are flocking to hear this young man preach. He gains a reputation. He gets invited to go to America. He spent five months in America. He came back from America having had similar results with his preaching there. And on his return to England, he finds that he has been shut out of all of the pulpits of England. Something had happened in that five months where the ministers themselves had grown jealous of his power as a preacher. And they refused to let him preach. 
Because they couldn't have the same results. But George Whitfield felt a call of God on his life. And he was desperate for this gospel to continually be preached with power to the common people. And he was trying to think to himself, how can I do this? I can't preach in any churches. What do I do? And his answer came to him through correspondence with a great Welsh preacher by the name of Howell Harris. And in his correspondence with Harris, Harris had said to him, well, come down to Wales and I want you to see something that I've been doing with great effect. Howell Harris pioneered this whole phenomenon called open air preaching. And Howell Harris would have a soapbox that he'd stand on and literally tens of thousands would come and hear him in Wales and be saved. And so he invites Whitfield down. Whitfield takes the trip down to Wales, but on his way, he gets waylaid in the city of Bristol. And he's preaching in the jail in Bristol where he's been invited because they heard he was in town. Some of the societies. And as he's in Bristol, he takes a trip, a day trip out to one of the outlying areas called Kingswood. It was a coal mining area, very poor area. And he sees the deplorable state of these coal miners and their families. Living literally like animals. And his heart is moved with compassion. Like the heart of Jesus was moved this day. And what did he do? He preached his first open air sermon. He couldn't wait to get down to Wales. He had to preach to these people. He stands on a little knoll there in Kingswood. And he preached to about 200 of these coal miners and their families. And uh, he gives the following testimony. After that day, he said this, Blessed be God, I've broken the ice. I believe I was never more acceptable to my master than when I was standing to teach those hearers in the open fields. Some may censure me, try to silence me. But if, th- if I thus pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. See, here was Jesus. He's in a house. He's not in a synagogue. It's not the Sabbath day. Yeah, you want to preach, you want to teach, do it in church on a Sunday. But Jesus wasn't constrained by that. He takes his moment and he preaches because he knows he has the words of life. And so with Whitfield, he preaches to these 200 coal miners. And it is no exaggeration to say that the world, after that day in Kingswood, the world, particularly England and America, would never be the same again. Whitfield returned to Kingswood to preach uh, one week later. That day, there was a crowd of 2,000 people waiting for him. He came back two days later. The crowd had swelled to 4,000. He came back two days later. The crowd had swelled to a mass of 10,000 people. God, do this again. Of that day, Whitfield said this, Having no righteousness of their own to renounce, They were glad to hear of a Jesus who was the friend of publicans and sinners. And came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he said, the first discovery of these people's being affected was to see the white gutters made by the tears which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of their coal pits. Just picture it. He's, he's standing there, 10,000 people in front of him. All of them faces black with coal. And he says, the first 
moment that I knew that my message was being heard and that the Holy Spirit was bringing it with conviction to their hearts, I began to see these white gutters that their tears were washing down their faces as they began to realize this Jesus came for sinners. I can be saved. The greatest moments in history, the preaching of the gospel with power. Nothing compares to that. Whitfield returns to London and he immediately takes up open air preaching on Kennington Common. Within one week he was preaching to 30,000 people on Kennington Common, destitute poor people. He returned each evening to Kennington. He's now preaching daily. And he's preaching to crowds of up to 50,000 people on Kennington. I mean, we can't conceive it. When God does this, it's, it's a miracle. He begins to preach also at Mayfair near Hyde Park Corner. And the greatest crowd in this time that he was recorded as preaching to was a crowd of 80,000 people. I mean, it's quite staggering when you think this young man is 24 years old. And he's preaching to 80,000 people without a microphone. Now you may wonder, how can someone preach to a crowd that big? Well, quite clearly God had given Whitfield a strong preaching voice. Uh, I think it was Benjamin Franklin at the time, who was a contemporary, said you could hear Whitfield preach a mile away. But there was something else that accounts for the strange phenomenon. The, the, the crowds that gathered to hear Whitfield preach were famously silent. I mean, just picture it. There's Whitfield standing and 80,000 people, some of them sitting, some standing, some of them on horseback, many of them climbing trees. And an unearthly, holy silence over this crowd. Hanging on his every word as he preached the everlasting gospel of God's peace to them. God, do this again. Do this again in our generation. We long for it, God. Lord, we're lost. We're like sheep without a shepherd without you, Jesus. We can't do this, Lord. We can't draw men to come and hear the preaching of the gospel, but you can do it again, God. And I want to pray, let it be recorded in heaven that I prayed this today, God. That you will come again and that you will do this in our generation. Let the gospel run forth swiftly, God, and be glorified. Do it again. So Whitfield was a great preacher, but you know the Bible says that there's never been a man who spoke like Jesus. He was infinitely more powerful than George Whitfield. And there he is on this day, this house crowded with people, and he's clothed with power, and he begins to preach. My second point today, moments like this must be taken when they come. You must recognize, my friend, when you are in an environment and you are coming face to face with God through the preaching of the gospel. You must recognize that moments like this, when conviction comes on us and the emotion in your heart rises, almost like your heart is going to burst with the truth of the gospel. You feel the Holy Spirit moving you, speaking to you, commanding you, calling you, gathering you to himself. You must answer the call of God when it comes. 
Because my friends, the emotion dies down. You go back to your lives. And the dullness and the drudgery and the excuses of your flesh and the deceptions of the devil will drag you away from this moment of an open heaven over you when God is calling you to himself. In, um, in this case, Jesus is clothed with power. It is a moment. It is a moment where people can be touched and healed and saved. And we see two groups of people. The evangelists, the guys who wrote the Gospels, they contrast two very definite groups that day. They're the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Seated in all their pomp and pride and all of their concern for what people thought about them. And the presence of God was there for them if they would have it. But they would not. Too concerned about their own reputations. And yet there is contrasted with with these people. Five young men. Who didn't care what people thought anymore. Didn't care. Desperate for Jesus. Are you desperate today for him? So they hear the news that Jesus is in town. They quickly get hold of each other. He's here. He's here. We must get our friend. We must, we must bring him. And they took a bit longer to get there because they had to get together, get their friend, get him in some kind of presentable order, put him on the mat, and they carried him to Jesus. But by the time they got there, it was too late. There's crowds all around this house. They can't get through. And yet they had a resolve. They had made a decision. Their their friend is lying there paralyzed. And they look at him in the eyes. When he sees the crowds. He's thinking oh no. This is my moment. Oh no. They look at him in the eyes and they say to him. Don't you fear. We're going to get you to him. We're going to get you. Don't worry. We will get you to him. And they look and they see some stairs going up to the top of the house. They said, come. We're going to get you to if it kills us. If we fall off that, I don't care. We don't care. We're going to get you to him. Maybe you've got a friend that brought you here this morning. And maybe it is that. You know that your friend has been praying for you. And witnessing to you. And telling you about Jesus. And. And maybe you've dodged the discussions and you've kind of, you know, put aside the conviction. And, and you're here today and somehow they've got you to come today. My friend, don't be angry with them and don't be angry with me this morning. We want to lay you before the King of Kings, the Creator of the universe and the only Savior of sinners. We want to lay you before Him this morning. Desperate that you might come to Jesus. Because you need him. And so they, they bring him. In uh, Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar. There's this interaction between uh, Brutus and Cassius. Who have staged a civil war against Octavian and Marcus Antonius. 
And Octavian and Marcus Antonius are busy gathering their forces. And Brutus and Cassius are speaking. What should we do next? Cassius says, no, we, we must seek refuge in, uh, in the port nearby so that we can catch our breath and regroup. But Brutus says to Cassius, no, we have a moment here that we must take. We must seize our moment because Octavian is busy gathering his forces. Our forces are at the peak of their power. We are only going to lose power from here on. We have a moment in time and we must take it. And then Brutus says those famous words. You may recognize these. See if you can try to understand what he's saying here. Because it's so relevant. He says this. There is a tide in the affairs of men. Which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which when taken at the flood, leads on to fortune. But omitted, if you don't do it, all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. There are only so many moments, my friend, that you will find yourself sitting under the impassioned preaching of the gospel. There are only so many moments you must take them. Because if you miss your moment, many people have gone to hell because of procrastination. You must take your moment. Maybe it's this morning for you. Don't spend the rest of your life in the shallows and in miseries. Brutus says to Cassius, on such a full sea are we now afloat. And we must take the current when it serves. Take it this morning, my friend. If you're here as a guest, if you've never committed your life to Christ, take your moment this morning. Please, I I beseech you. I don't know what it is that stands between you and Jesus. I don't know what it is that causes you to delay this decision. I was about your age when I committed my life to Christ. I had delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. Because I liked getting drunk. I liked partying. I liked having girlfriends. When I was together with my girlfriend... Same thing, delayed it, delayed it. I was taken to some meetings by Christian friends of mine where I was so close to committing myself wholly, just throwing caution to the wind and throwing myself on Him for mercy. But I didn't because I'm so scared of what my friends are going to think. All the manna, what are they going to think? So scared of what my girlfriend would think. What would happen to my relationship if I suddenly became this religious fanatic? As if God can't solve those problems. Amen. Amen. What are you waiting for? Honestly, what are you waiting for? On such a full sea are we now afloat. And we must take it when it serves. Make your decision for Christ today, my friend. Lastly, I'll finish with this. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Jesus is uh, presented with this man. They let him down through the roof. Let's read from verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins? But God alone. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he knew what they were thinking because he was God. 
He answered, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. And he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Forgiveness first, healing second. There was a secret transaction that was taking place between these five guys and Jesus that day that no one else knew about. From the context of the story It seems to be indicated, we can't say this with certainty, but it seems that this guy's paralysis was due to something that he had done. Perhaps he'd got drunk and fallen off a horse or fallen out of a window or something, and his his four friends had probably been involved. That's why they were so desperate to get to Jesus. That's why they were so committed to help their friend, because my reading of it is that they had been somehow involved in what had paralyzed him. And they lived under a tremendous guilt for their sin. And this young man himself who was paralyzed lived every day with a reminder of his foolishness and of his sin. And my friend, that does describe you. You know the marks, the scars of your sinful living that you still carry. And Jesus knew the great need for these five young men, their greatest need. Is for them to be forgiven. For them to have peace with God. That they wouldn't, I wouldn't just heal this man. But for the rest of their lives they would still live under the bondage of guilt and fear. That somehow God was going to punish them again for what they did. No. Jesus wants you to be free. He wants you to live with an absolutely clear conscience. Knowing that everything you've ever done has been forgiven for his sakes. Because he died on a cross. To take the punishment for your sins. Forgiveness first. Your greatest need is not to pass your exams. To get a new car. To get your sickness healed. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sin. You must reckon with that. The secret transaction. He sees into their hearts. And he sees faith. Sees faith in them and he says, your sins are forgiven. And a great burden is lifted off. Have you had that? Have you felt that moment when the burden of your sin was lifted off of you and you knew it's finished? Been forgiven. You can know that this morning. You simply come to Jesus in faith and he'll forgive you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I want to encourage you, if you are feeling a conviction today, if you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you, whether it's to come to Jesus for the first time, or whether it's to return to Jesus after backsliding back into the world, 
or whether it's some other decision that, that you feel God is calling you to make, you have a moment today when there is conviction, there is intensity, and the Spirit of God is speaking to you. And I implore you this morning, don't delay. Make your decision for Jesus today. Amen.